Nervous Habits Bonus Content. How's it going, guys? Welcome to Nervous Habits Bonus Content. All you guys who are sitting around eagerly waiting for the bonus episodes, you are in luck because this is the ace the ace the eighth edition of the bonus episodes if you're new to the pod rather than the typical you know informative entertaining uh very structured conversations that i have in the regular episodes the bonus episodes are more anything goes it's uncut unscripted uncensored generally i like to have guests you know uh cast characters from my life to uh shoot the breeze with me on the bonus episodes this week i'm gonna be um you know doing this bonus episode alone I wanted to change it up because it's been about 15 episodes that I've had with guests and I haven't really had a chance to, you know, just sort of air what's on my mind, talk about, you know, current issues, everything with the pandemic and the protests and 2020 and, you know, pop culture and, uh, you know, life transformations that I've been experiencing. So I don't know. I figure this is a cool opportunity for me to do that. Um, like I said, I don't have any sort of roadmap for how this bonus episode is going to go. It might be challenging. Um, I will say, like, you know, generally the bonus episodes, when when I have friends on, it's kind of fun because we get to bounce off of each other. So you really get, you rarely get any uh, dead dead air, you know, because if I'm thinking about what to say, one of my buddies is jumping in or um, so... I'm sort of jumping into the ocean here with no life raft, um, and you know we'll we'll see how it goes. If I have to, you know, stop and start, I will. Um, I have my my coffee here, uh, as needed, homemade fresh iced coffee. Uh, you'll notice maybe maybe you'll notice the acoustics are a little different for this uh, bonus episode because this is actually the first episode of Nervous Habits that I'm recording from my new. Um, apartment. I moved into a a new building a little bit closer to my law school campus. Um, much better neighborhood than I was in before. Um, it's it's sort of a couple couple steps, couple notches up the ladder. Um, and I'm I'm super excited. Uh, this is the first time that I'm living alone in. It's got to be like five six years because uh, after college I lived alone for uh, about six months to a year. I lived with my ex-girlfriend for a couple of years. I lived with uh, one of my best friends in New York. And then I lived with um, my roommate last this past year. So it's been six years since I lived alone. And uh, I will say, you know, it's, it's really a different perspective. Um, it's a different way of life when you have a studio apartment to yourself as opposed to, you know, sharing the space with, um, with someone. Because I think... You know, there's there's virtues and there's shortcomings to living by yourself. You definitely, if you're someone who's neat and tidy and OCD like me, it's super advantageous to live on your own because you control the threshold for cleanliness of the space. Whereas, like, you know, I've had roommates. I'm not mentioning names, but I've had roommates where I have to, you know, do their dishes or, um, you know, pick up their garbage, and I almost feel like I'm mothering them a little bit. Um. And, you know, it's nice to be able to clean up a mess and know that I'm not going to wake up to dishes in the sink or, you know, I'm not going to have to like throw out old food in the fridge. It, it is nice too that everything in the refrigerator belongs to me. You know, it's, there's a sense of like ownership of, um, 
of the space. If I want to have guests over, I don't have to like text someone like, "Hey man, like I'm I'm coming, you know, I'm coming back with some friends. Is that cool?" Uh it's 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 awesome. I think the really the, the biggest um shortcoming, maybe the only shortcoming is it can get lonely. For sure if you're living by yourself and you're having especially with the pandemic, god, like you're having a day where I'm um, you know, maybe you're you're feeling down. Maybe you you're itching for some social interaction. Uh, it can be tough because you don't you know wake up and, and say good morning to someone or you know uh, cross paths with them on the way to the shower or anything like that. It's it's very much like there might be a couple days right like where you literally have no um, social interaction. So I think that's challenging because I'm super extroverted, but. Uh, luckily I have some friends from law school who live in this building. Um, and I'm trying to, you know, I've been living here a couple weeks now. I'm trying to make it so that I'm not in those positions where a week goes by and, and I'm not interacting with anyone. So it's been, uh, it's been a great, a great first couple weeks here. Uh, summer in general, um, has been nice. I mean, what was I going to say? The weather has been amazing. Um, <laughs> I'm not, by the way, I'm not like filling filling time here. But my first unscripted bonus episode, I, I genuinely mean it. You know, we've had high 80s, 90s every day. Um, it's, you know, it's just unfortunate. Like that. I mean, it's unfortunate on two fronts. It's unfortunate that we have had this pandemic where, you know, we had July 4th last month and nobody was out in D.C. It was, you know, they had fireworks, but it was sparsely attended and. You know, on the on the weekends, you know, no one's in the street, no one's at restaurants, no one's at bar. That's super unfortunate. But it's even more unfortunate, arguably, that you have people who are forsaking the limitations of the pandemic and social distancing, who are, you know, opting not to wear masks and who are, you know, being in big groups and having parties and social events and sort of throwing caution to the wind. I think that's even worse because, you know, it's I think a lot of people are are experiencing sort of uh, virus fatigue where they're just over it. You know, oh, we social distance for three months, four months. Let's on to the next thing. We've we've done our our job to flatten the curve, and and I understand that, and I sort of feel that way myself. Um, like, at what point can we just return to normal? We can't live in fear forever. Like life short. I, I I get all that, but at the end of the day, like. If everyone, it's like recycling, right? Like if everyone has that mindset, this is not going to get better. And the problem is, and I mentioned this, I think we did a, a couple bonus episodes ago at the beginning of the pandemic. We were talking about how government factors in, but it's so hard in a free, you know, democratic society where the government can't, you know, um, impose martial law and force you to stay inside your homes and. Um, I know certain states, I guess you do have at the state level, uh, the state, state's police powers under the 10th Amendment, states have uh, you know, imposed um, orders, executive orders where uh, you can receive a fine for not wearing a mask. But be that as it may, generally speaking, in our society, one of the, uh, you know, the detriments to having as much freedom as we do is that means that people have the freedom not to wear masks and people have the freedom to do stupid shit at the expense of other people. Um, so I don't know. It, it's it's disheartening because it 
it sort of leads you to, leads you to believe that it might be like it might be like this for a very long time. Um, and you know, you hear conflicting reports about whether or not a vaccine could be ready by early 2021, by the middle of 2021. So, you know, initially they were saying end of 2020. I, I don't see how that was happening. Um, but the CDC is saying at some point in 2021, which first of all is is far away. I mean, that's still at least another six, seven months of this, which is you know brutal to think about in so many respects. But also there's no guarantees for how it would look, you know, look like once there is a vaccine that's out in production, like how would it be distributed? Um, you know, how how efficient would, um, you know, healthcare manufacturers be at actually delivering that vaccine to pharmacies? Once it's in the hands of pharmacies and hospitals, what would the process look like for vaccinating, you know, hundreds of millions of people? And then how, you know, what are the implications for the healthcare system and, and the cost and um, how accessible it is? So there are so many considerations. I don't think you can say, oh, you know, in six months, we'll get a vaccine and the pandemic will be over. I don't know. Like this, this is the new normal, you know, like it's, and I'm, I'm sick. I'm sick of talking about it. I'm, I'm, I'm tired of, I, I mean, I, you know, it's in every social circle, it's, you know, Corona, this COVID, this social distancing, this, and I'm conflicted because I don't want to talk about it anymore, but we also sort of need to talk about it. So it's, it's uh fuck. This is, this is, you know, I don't know. This is tough. This is 2020. 2020 is a year that none of us will will ever forget. Uh, and I think that it's difficult on a number of fronts. You know, you think about children who – I was actually asking my friend the other day, like, like in, in the age of corona, you know, what would be the most difficult – in the time of corona, what would be the most difficult age or point in your life to be experiencing this, right? Like – my buddy was like, oh, you know, maybe it'd be tough to be in high school right now. But then I sort of said, you know what? I wouldn't mind doing high school <laughs> on Zoom. That actually sounds that sounds sort of re- like a relief compared to, you know, the drama of, of who to sit with in the cafeteria and, you know, who's going to see what your locker and, and you know, what's going to happen when you get called on in class and all that. Like, I don't know. High school online wouldn't be that bad. I, I actually think um, people who are beginning college right now are at such a serious disadvantage because, uh, I don't know, you just reflect on your life and where your major life developments took place. And for most people, when they moved away and went to college and started living in a dorm with their friends and really solidified their personality, that happened when you were 18, 19, 20 years old. So people who right now are having to um, experience all that online or... You know, a lot of uh, what's it called? A lot of um, schools are preparing for sort of a hybrid model. Um, I was reading something on CSNBC uh, or on CNBC the other day that uh, out of a thousand colleges that the Chronicles of Higher Ed have been tracking since April, sixty-five percent of them are prepping for in-person classes this fall. Um, so one school, I think it was Tulane, uh, they're they're planning on having students living on campus in dorms and planning for classes to be held in person. Uh, I think they're going to be taking measures to reduce the density of the, the classrooms. And um, I think most schools are going to be ending the uh, fall semester in, by, by Thanksgiving so that they could allow 
people to go back home with their families, and then they don't have to worry about traveling back um, to uh, to campus. So some schools are doing fully remote, which, as I said, really suck for people that are beginning um, college, you know. And some schools are doing. Uh, I don't know if you could say Tulane is like fully in person, but um, pretty much like trying to make it as normal as possible with some restrictions. And most schools are doing um, like that, that that hybrid where the big classes are online um, and most uh, – so actually let, let me pull this up because I want to make sure I'm not misleading you here. So Harvard is doing fully in person or sorry, Harvard is doing fully online. Um, so that that's sort of rough. And let's see, University of South Carolina, some classes online, some in person. Northwestern is a hybrid. Um, UPenn is considering a range of scenarios. A lot of schools don't even know, which which is like sort of crazy because it's, you know, August and the instruction begins in a couple weeks and some schools are still weighing their options. I mean, I, even at a law school level, we've been getting emails pretty much every week or two over the summer that, that the university is still weighing its options, you know, considering these uncertain times, these unprecedented times. How often do you, you know, you see those emails? Um, <laughs> but I mean, yeah, like in my case for school, um, beginning my, my second year in law school in the fall, I mean, we don't even really have clarity about what what it's going to look like, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a hybrid. I'm, I'm sick of this hybrid language. I'm pretty sure it's going to be like um, the same hybrid, so to speak. Man, what would what would these institutions do without the word hybrid? Hybrid, hybrid, hybrid. Um, uh, yeah, it's going to be like like sort of a like they, they're dividing up the classes. Oh no, I'm yawning. See, this is stupid. Why am I talking about this? All right, let's let's switch gears. You know, enough about the pandemic, enough about law school, enough about all that. Um, what? Okay, so what have I been doing? How have I been filling my time? Um, besides, I'm interning uh, for the the federal courts. Um, what else? I have been spending a lot of time watching uh, movies, and if you you know are newer to the pod and you haven't listened to one of my bonus episodes, you haven't listened to one of my more solo. Um, episodes. I am a, a certified <laughs> movie critic. We uh, we uh, amongst my friends, I have this this list of a couple hundred movies that I've seen. It's called Rick's Rex R I C K S R E C S, and it's like pretty much um, a numerical scale of every movie I've seen in the last ten years, and dating back to 2010. And it's rated on a scale of one to ten, but the uh, it goes to like the the hundredth decimal point, like you know seven point seven five six point you know, five, five, uh, you know, 5.2, uh, what have you. And then I even have a, a special collection, which, um, is aptly called Rick's Rex, but it's W R E C K S. And those are, uh, the, you know, bottom 20, 30 films that I've, I've seen. And I think in one episode I actually went through, um, let me, let me see if I, I could tell you which episode that was. I went through the best and the worst films that I've seen. This might've been on one of my, um, more recent ones. Let's see. This was back in episode. Maybe it was. What is it? My mid year update? No. Maybe it was my culture of consumption episode. Let's see. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So in episode 27, The Cultures of Consumption, I touched on the worst movies ever, um, in my opinion. The Rick's Rex W. 
R-E-C-K-S. And then back in episode, was it 15? Yeah, that was the one with Ian. That's where I actually covered the 50 movies that you need to see in your lifetime. So if you so if you like what I'm about to tell you about, about the, my movie list, then definitely check those out. But um, in the last like month or two, I have seen um, about like 20, 30 movies. Um, and then, you know, my process is after I see the movie, I, you know, do a deep dive online. I read about the production process. I, I take a look at the critical reviews, at the audience reviews. Because usually there's like, there's a, uh, you know, a divergence. You have like the critics hated the movie, but the audience loved it. Or the critics thought it was incredible, but the audience didn't get it. Generally speaking, guys, the audience is right. Because if you think about like, like, who a movie is is um, is geared towards? It's not a lot of movies, except for some Oscar bait. They're the reason why um, you know tens of millions of dollars are shoveled into the film is to make money at the box office, is to get people to to go see it. You look at movies like The Avengers or Fast and the Furious. Those are movies that maybe aren't as critically acclaimed, but you know they they sell you know millions of of, uh, of tickets because they're geared towards um towards folks like you and me not towards the richard ropers um or the peter travers of the world so let's see so here's um the most recent 10 15 films i saw and i'll give you i'll give you like the, the ratings um from best to worst so to give you a sense of of the scale i'm working for uh working towards so like the highest I've ever rated a film, Taxi Driver, um, The Shawshank Redemption, Goodfellas, The Matrix, those are 9.75. That's the highest you can get on my scale. And the lowest, to give you a, a flavor, so the Rick's Rex, uh, Birdman, Downsizing, The Darkest Hour, Enter the Void, those are 1 out of 10. So the range is 1 to 9.75. Never had one that's higher or lower. So let's see here. So... um. Okay, so the first film, the highest rated film that I've seen in the last two months is Yesterday. Um, that was a 7.5 out of 10. So Yesterday is the, the Beatles movie. It's about that, that guy who gets in an accident and he wakes up and he realizes that no one in the world remembers who the Beatles are. And so he's a musician, so he starts to play all of their songs um, and... Then people are obviously enamored with him, and he, you know, begins a, a an all time great music career, just essentially duplicating what the Beatles did because the Beatles never existed. Uh, so I, I, I thought that, I thought the movie was really good. Um, I'm so I'm a I'm a Beatles fan. Uh, so I was a sucker for for all that stuff, and um, just psychologically, I think so. Films that I enjoy are ones that have an interesting message, and. I don't know, like, like you know, watch a movie like that and you begin to think about, you know, a couple things. Could the Beatles have gotten famous today? Or, um, you know, why, like, what made the Beatles so good? Um, if if you were the main character in that film, like, what would you have done? Um, and, and actually, before I even, like, like, address those questions, just, like, the music of the movie was so good. They took songs like Help and I saw her standing there and just the main character played by who was it? It was um, uh, Hemish Patel. That's who it was. Uh, the main character played by Hemish Patel essentially made like took his voice. He's a very talented guy, um, and he just he made the um, the sounds his own. So I, I love the music, and 
it actually sort of like sent me down a, a Beatles rabbit hole, and and I was like thinking like what were what are my like favorite Beatles songs ever? Because they have, I think I was reading some article they have like two hundred thirty different songs. Um, so I would probably say that let's see, I'll give you I'll give you ten if I can give you ten right now. Um, let's pull up some Beatles discography. Hopefully you can't hear my computer humming. It does that sometimes. The the fan just starts. Um, ten Beatles songs here. Mm. Uh, so let's see. Um, definitely yesterday. That's in my top ten. In my life, I have a soft spot for because that was uh, that was when I had had my bar mitzvah back in two thousand five. That was like one of the songs on my CD. Um, something something has grown on me a lot. Hey Jude and Let It Be, of course. Those are probably um, two of the best songs ever written. Uh, she loves you. Help! I saw her standing there. Actually, Rolling Stones has a pretty good list of the um, of the best songs. Uh, All you need is love is good. Yeah, never. I never really got into like the like Eleanor Rigby, Penny Lane, Starberry Fields one. Uh, those weren't that good. Here comes the sun was classic. Um, can't buy me love. It's either can't buy me love or love me do. One of those songs I was reading ha- only has like twenty words in it. The same. Tw- I think it was love me do. The same twenty words ever, which is like p- pathetic or whatever. Um, mm, maybe eight days a week. Uh, maybe Blackbird. It's just amazing. Like as as I'm scrolling through these songs, the the fact that you can look up a hundred songs from the Beatles and you can know the words to every single one. Like I'm scrolling this through this and I'm like, all my loving, like, and I think, oh, you know, I'll give all my loving to you. And I think of, you know, uh, I see drive my car, baby, you can drive my car. Like it, how rare is it that you can just look up a list of, um, every song ever written by band and just know every single song. Like the Beatles, you know, I posed the question a few minutes ago, could the Beatles be as successful today? I don't think so. I think that when you look at um, the the explosion of uh, you know all time historic um, greatness and and um, you know renown that that bands like the Beatles experience, it's really a perfect storm, a, a conflagration of of not just uh, you know talent and and um, success, but also timing. You know, if you had a band like the Beatles today, who's to say they wouldn't be lost in the, you know, crowded white noise, the abyss of, of YouTube or or Spotify? They wouldn't be just another band. That's all pretty good, pretty good. I like their sound, the talent. But like, I don't know. It just it they were just in the right place in the right time, and people were starving for a new sound in the um in the you know the fifties and sixties. And I think that that's that's how they were able to be. Um, to be so successful, no one had ever had ever had you know this this combination of rock and um, like soulfulness um, and yeah, I, like I don't I don't I actually don't know a lot about music. I don't want to. I'm I'm not at all like a, a music guy. I, I just know that that they you know they were a special group. Um, probably the best the best band ever written. Um, uh, special group and I don't know like I don't know if if yeah I don't know anyways so yesterday was yesterday was a really good movie um, and then what else have I seen Invisible Man 
Invisible Man was a 7.25. That was that was interesting. Actually, it's funny. Some of these reviews or some of these ratings, you know, you look at them and then a couple months later, you're like, oh, maybe that was a little high. Maybe I should move that down. Generally, more often than not, the uh, film reviews end up being um, lower upon second look. So I try not to move the scores around too much. Um, because then I'm in, you know, then I'm in a never-ending game of, of second-guessing myself and and moving these around. But you know, once in a while, I will will make an adjustment. And Invisible Man was okay. It was like a, a thriller horror movie um, with Elizabeth Moss, where essentially she uh, breaks up with her ex-boyfriend, and he, um, I think it was based on a book or a movie or something, and he essentially becomes invisible so he can stalk her. Um, it doesn't sound great, but it was just executed pretty well. Uh, there were, there were a couple twists. I don't want to give too much away, but I liked, I I liked it. It was very watchable. I I might actually bump it down to, um, to under a seven now having, having like, like thought about that and, um, just comparing it to a film like yesterday. I I don't know if it's that close. So seven to five, maybe seven. Um, how's it already been a half hour? Jeez. I feel like I haven't even said anything. Uh, then I've seen There Will Be Blood, and There Will Be Blood, why are you so tired? I feel like, I don't know, I feel like during the, the school year in law school, I, I had so much energy, and I had this, like, like, neurotic, um, you know, chaos, like, this nervous energy propelling me out of bed every morning, and packed schedule, and then over the summer, I'm just, I've been so lethargic. I feel like, I feel like all I'm doing is laying around and I don't even know. I don't even know. What the hell was I talking about? I'm, why is my laptop still buzzing like that? Can you guys hear that? Let me check my, uh, let's see. See, I like I said, I've never done a bonus episode. So now you guys are actually seeing seeing why because when I lose structure things go south storage so I check my storage so I have 35 gigs left so it's not that let's check the memory let's see how many applications are open um all right so there will be blood was okay I mean again like I'm not I'm not like a, a contrarian that you know takes a movie like like fight club or uh I mean, it it happens with a lot of, you know, films that I see that have sky high expectations. But this is also sort of one where the critics loved it and the fans just sort of, you know, thought it was pretty good. But there will be blood. Uh, you know, Daniel Day Lewis plays this oil tycoon who's ruthless and um, you know will stop at nothing to expand his empire. Right? Like, pretty um, you know straightforward story. Uh, people love the movie because of the uh, Daniel Day Lewis's performance was incredible and. Um, the writing was very tight. They had all these, you know, cool special effects. Um, I guess it was based on a book by Upton Sinclair Oil. I th- I thought it was okay. Like, I don't know what it is. I, so I think Daniel Day Lewis is an ultra talented guy. Obviously, um, you know, just just method actor completely blew me away. And uh, in Lincoln, obviously, it's career defining performance. I think I saw Gangs in New York a long time ago. He's pretty good in that. Never saw The Phantom Thread, but um, you know, people say that. Uh, whatever his name is, Penny Baker or whatever, um, uh, in this movie, uh, was his best, his best performance ever. Um, what the hell was the character's name? 
Oh, Plainview. No, people say that Plainview, uh, Dan Plainview, was his best performance. Um, I don't know. Like, it was, it was fine. It was entertaining. But I just, I wasn't, I wasn't engrossed. I think part of the reason was maybe, maybe I thought that there weren't any. I'm trying to, to pinpoint what I didn't like about the movie. Um, first of all, I, you know, I, I sort of don't want to spoil it, even though it's like 13 years old. But the ending didn't really make sense. I, I don't understand why Daniel. All right. Well, listen, if you haven't seen the movie, skip skip forward two minutes. But I don't understand why, in the end of the movie, Daniel uh, killed Eli with the, with a bowling pin. I understand why they wanted the scene in because it was really cool and and you know it's a nice little uh, you, you know neat cut for their Oscar reel. But I didn't get it. I didn't get their relationship. I didn't get why Eli, you know, wanted Daniel's approval since Daniel treated him so so badly. I didn't really know why Daniel hated him so much. And but I think one of the, one of my main problems with the film is there was no there was no rooting interest. I think that every film, every show, um, in order to really strike an emotional connection with the with the viewer, you need to have a reason to root for one character, whether it's the protagonist, whether it's the antagonist, whether it's the supporting character. Everyone in the movie, you know, kind of sucked. And you see, you know, you see this with with a lot of um, films, with The Sopranos, uh, with with Breaking Bad, where the the main characters are, are just irredeemable and evil. Um, but, you know, in some cases you can root for, like, you know, I think a, a Breaking Bad, you root for Jesse, you root for, um, some of the other characters, but it wasn't really the case here. Like you had Daniel Plainview, you had his son who was, uh, who was deaf and you had this guy, um, Eli, and I just didn't find myself being able to root for any of them. So I don't know. I couldn't even like get through the movie. I watched a little bit of it. I stopped it. I watched it the next day. To me, that's a tell when, um, when a movie is not at least for me, up to my standards, when I, when rather than you know sitting it sitting with it for three hours like I did with the Godfather movies, and I can't press pause because it's so good. When I can just like stop the movie and like rewatch and watch you know resume it the next day, that for me is a tell that it's not a great movie. So I give that I give um uh there will be about a six to five. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button that movie was a six. Uh, I, I that had been on my list for a super 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 long time. Um. It was it was a decent movie. I love the the concept is great. You know the idea of, of aging backwards um, and how you know he he's born an old man and then he uh, you know when he's when he's a child when he's an old man in a child's body he ends up um, you know meeting the girl who's aging forward and then then they both arrive at the same age and it's a really you know beautiful synergy there. Uh, my issues with that movie were first of all it was a little, it was a little creepy. I don't know if anyone else watching uh, got that impression. A little creepy that uh, Brad Pitt's character in that movie was like a 70-year-old man at the beginning and he was hiding under a table like talking to this five-year-old girl. Like I, I, I get why, right? Like they're both the same age technically, but it just – it was visually a little bit jarring. felt a little weird, uh, predatory. And uh, what else was weird in that movie? I don't know. Like, and then the whole thing at the end when he was a baby and she was old, taking care of him, that felt a little weird. Um, I also wish they dived more into the like exposition, like how exactly did it work that Brad Pitt, you know, was aging backwards. They never explained that, so it almost seemed like lazy writing. Um, and also the whole mode of narration where the main character is like old and dying in the hospital and recounting, you know, her, her, um, the greatest love of her life. I mean, you've seen that so many times already with Titanic and with the notebook, like, I don't know, granted the movie I think was made in, let's see what year the Curious Case of Benjamin Button was made. 
um, in 2008. But still, like, I, I don't know. I think they could have done a little bit more to um, to make the the storytelling more, uh, you know, more creative. I thought Brad Pitt was great. Maybe his uh, his best best performance. Um, and that and by the way, that was another David Fincher movie. I mean, he's he's made some classics. He made the the Social Network. He made Gone Girl, which was amazing. Um, what else did he make? He made uh, oh my gosh, he made uh, Seven, which is a very very good movie. Um, he made Fight Club, not great. So he's made he's made some some classics. So uh, Curious Case was a six. Bombshell was another six. Um, so a lot of these movies were were pretty much like the same. But that was a movie about the um, uh, the sexual assault scandals that rocked Fox News, leading to the termination of Roger Ailes. So you had. Um, uh, Megan Kelly was played by Charlize Theron. Oh my God, the makeup, the ma- the way that they turned um, Charlize Theron into Megan Kelly was actually sort of incredible. I remember watching videos afterwards about the process. Like she would have to have um, prosthetic implants placed inside her nose so the nose was the same shape. And they did all this stuff with um, they created like a a, a mold made of clay of Megan Kelly, Kelly's face, and they modeled um, like everything on uh Charlie's throne off of that and then she said it took her like five hours every day to get the makeup on and um and she really like like there were scenes where it just felt like I was watching Megan Kelly it was it I mean that that was super impressive I think that movie was recent last year uh or, or yeah yeah last year and then um Gretchen Carlson was played by Nicole Kidman um, John Lithgow was incredible as Roger Ailes. He's he's one hell of an actor. Um, and then you also had Margot Robbie. She was like the fictional Fox News um, uh, uh, employee. But I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty good movie. Um, you know, again, like base level entertaining. Uh, but like, but it was you know it was missing a little something. It, it, I think I think again for like movies to to score higher on my list. You know, there needs to be there needs to be like. Like an added an added factor and an itch that you know leaves you wanting more after the film. So I don't know. I, I thought that was fine. Um, I watched Hitch uh, for the first time. Some of these movies you're probably like, how, how have I not seen it? But um, I don't know. I, I saw Hitch for the first time. Super funny. Uh, Will Smith is is a is, is a legend. Very formulaic um, plot. Uh, it is very funny watching these movies about dating and sex just to see how what's socially acceptable has changed like hitch was written in hitch came out in 2005 and essentially it's um i mean you guys know this will smith's character is a professional dating consultant he helps guys get girlfriends and essentially like at one point in the movie he there was this guy who like wanted to um attract a woman just to have sex with her and then never call her again and Will Smith's character was like oh I don't do that that's morally wrong so and this is 15 years ago it's it's interesting because I think um that would pretty much be the uh you know if I think that obviously sex and dating is such a delicate um topic when it's depicted in the media because you're dealing with issues of of consent and um you know uh potential coercion and things like that um so it it was like pretty well handled for a movie that was made in in 2005 um like i I could i could honestly see a movie that i mean you look at i don't know you look at like characters like barney and how i met your mother um which you know amazing show love his character um i i actually personally don't see a lot problematic with um the way that you know the way that uh 
Barney's character was written given the times in the early 2000s. But, you know, you watch it back and it aged poorly, right? Here's this, here's this guy who like, you know, takes advantage of women by lying to them about his career and, um, you know, boozing them up and then tries to sleep with them. Like, I definitely see where the issues might be. Um, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's hard when you're trying to impose our standards of what is deemed appropriate in 2020 on something that's made in 2005. So I, I thought, as like an aside, that was interesting, but it was a pretty funny movie. Kevin James was good. Um, I'm not like the biggest Kevin James fan. I never saw The King of Queens. Um, Paul Blart Mall Cop was funny, but like, I don't know. He's one of those people that's like, I don't understand what the hype is with him. Uh, I thought Will Smith was was um, sort of the star of that, but uh, I spent a lot of time talking about <laughs> talking about a pretty run-of-the-mill rom-com. Hitch was fine. Annihilation was was awful. Uh, that was the Natalie Portman movie. Um uh, what I I, didn't, I actually did not even understand it. I guess it was like a uh, like some sort of alien portal or, or something where uh, a bunch of these like biologists and soldiers have to go inside this this portal and there's uh, mutations and all. I, like I actually did not really understand that film. And it's funny you talk to to people who who, who enjoyed the movie and they're like, oh my god, like you know how did you not like what did you miss and uh, maybe it just wasn't for me, but um, I know the film did did get a lot of credit for the cinematography and the visuals and Natalie Portman's performance. I honestly wasn't wasn't crazy about it. And the guy who made the movie Annihilation, I remember why I saw it. It was made by the same guy who made um, X, I want to say Ex Machina. Am I wrong? Right? Alex Garland made yep ex machina exactly yeah so ex machina one of my favorite movies so i saw that because i had high hopes given um you know given that but i don't know i wasn't crazy about it and then the last uh movie i'll critique because i've already i've done 40 minutes and most of it has been on movies is the lost city of z this movie was was just absolute shit like there's there's no way around it um my roommate uh my sister was visiting my old roommate talked us into watching it um it was it was just it was one of those like like nerdy movies um, that I, I don't even know. It's, it, it was, uh, it's this like explorer movie and he like wants to go explore some unknown civilization. And I don't know, maybe if I played Dungeons and Dragons or I grew up reading, reading, you know, Heart of Darkness and that sort of thing, I would have been into this, this jungle exploration movie. It was, it was just weird. It, It was, it was a weird weird movie um yeah the weirder the movie is the less i have to say about it because i just i didn't i didn't get it it was hard to pay attention um man it was bad it was bad so that one was a two so anyways i'm gonna move on because i because i feel like i've been talking about movies a lot um what else is going on besides uh me spending time watching these these weird movies so baseball's coming back um at this at this point when the when the podcast is released it's probably back already um and Obviously, I have mixed feelings because this is the first year ever in my lifetime that I haven't had baseball. We haven't had baseball society. Something's definitely missing. Like I, I, I miss after a long day of work or school being able to flip on the TV and listen to Gary Cohen, Keith Hernandez, and Ron Darling call a Mets game. Um, I miss the endorphin rush of watching the Mets, you know, come from behind, or the extreme emotional letdown of watching them blow a lead the ninth inning um i miss being able to talk to my friends about the games i miss fantasy baseball um i i, I miss the excitement i miss the consistency of having something on every single day um to you know watch while i eat dinner i it's and it's crazy you know baseball has been around for 150 years and this is you know we had the strike in the 90s 
but like this is the first season um, where where you have no baseball for the first you know March April May, April May June first three four months and now we have a sixty game shortened season um, and I don't know like as much as I miss baseball I almost think this is a pretty bad idea because first of all just logistically speaking I don't think a sixty game season is what baseball is all about. You know, people have said for years, the baseball season is too long. 162 games is too long. Seven months is too long. You know, it, 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 it's, it's useless, whatever. Owners obviously have, have profit motives, you know, sell as many tickets as they can. Um, but the beauty of baseball is that it's a game of stamina. Like, the team that is leading the standings in April is not the team that's going to, you know, be clinching the division in September. And when you reduce a baseball uh, season to two months, you lose a lot of what, you know, of of the the large sample size that defines a season of the hot streaks and cold streaks of the tenacity and the perseverance and the resilience bouncing back from adversity the injuries all of what makes baseball special compared to a sport like the NFL where it's just a game every Sunday for you know for 16 games is lost so i don't know if i would have been crazy about the 60 game season for that one, for that reason also um you know then then in the context of covid right like you have players who have families who whose wives are pregnant, who have infants at home, who are putting you know their family's health on the line, and you've already seen a number of of you know players uh, opt out of the season. Mike Trout, the face of baseball, has said he's not sure if he wants to play because his wife is pregnant and he doesn't want to put her at risk. And you know, I personally don't blame uh, you know don't blame Trout for that. David Price opted out, and you know he he, he literally forfeited. What uh, twelve? What was it? Twelve million dollars? Um, even like he, this guy chose uh, ten million dollars, ten million, eleven, whatever it is, eleven million dollars salary. Um, he chose being with his family over that. You know, these players are taking COVID seriously. Sean Doolittle of the Nationals has been outspoken in his criticism of you know baseball not taking these things seriously. He said that you know sports are the reward of a well-functioning society. We're not well-functioning right now, right? And then you also have to consider you know will the season even be played in its entirety? Um, because the obviously you know when the season began in early July, uh, the baseball season tested. Every player, um, or rather, sorry, I'm sorry. When the season began in late July, the uh, MLB tested every player. Um, you know, uh, what was it? 3,200 uh, samples collected from the staff, from the players, from the personnel, and they got something like 38 positive, which, which is around one percent, which is on par with you know the national average. Um, that being said, if you look at the rate of transmissibility, that 38 positives, you know, could turn into 380 positives, right? If they spread. And then, I mean, at what point do you shut down the season? You saw that with the NBA. If you have, you know, a couple guys with coronavirus in a locker room that aren't quarantined or aren't put on the injured list soon enough, you know, sooner or later, the entire team is infected. The entire city is infected. And then, you know, forget flattening the curve, we have another spike of, you know, the pandemic. So there's so many risks here. And then you consider, you know how the sport is going to be different this year in terms of the rules. There's not going to be fans in the in, in the stands. I mean, the owners have said that at some point in the season they want fans in the stands. That's not happening. You can't have you know these stadiums hold sixty thousand people. You can't have you know thirty thousand people wearing masks sitting next to each other. I mean, yes, it's outside. Yes, there's a lower risk, but I mean, it's, it's these guys are, are again going back to Doolittle's points. They're concerned about you know selling tickets and, and raising revenues at the expense of 
um, you know, the health of, of the citizenry, uh, the citizens, citizenry. And then like as a, a diehard, you know, uh, baseball traditionalist, some of the rules that they're talking about imposing, like having a universal DH, I hate that idea. Right? Like, I think that, and, and you know, forgive me because I know a lot of you guys don't listen to this podcast to ever hear me talk about sports. <laughs> I mean, I, I very rarely talk about it, but it's one of my, uh, you know, w- one of my passions. I think that, that the beauty of the National League Baseball is there's so much strategy involved with having the pitcher hitch. Uh, the, the pitcher hitch. I'm still thinking about Will Smith. <laughs> with having the pitcher hit, right? Like, is the pitcher going to bunt? Is he going to sacrifice? Is he going to swing? Is he going to draw a walk? Are they going to pitch hit for him? You know, uh, is it going to be a lefty-righty matchup? Um, you know, is there going to be a double switch? Are you going to have someone come out of the bullpen? All of that strategy, all of that, um, you know, micromanaging of the game, uh, that that level of competition is eliminated when you just have nine, you know, hitters slotted in. Also, some of the pitchers can hit really well. You look at Madison Bumgarner. You look at you look at uh, Michael Lorenzen of the Reds. You look at Degrom of the Mets. I mean, some of these guys can flat out hit and. There have been so many enjoyable moments, you know, in baseball uh, from pitchers performing in clutch situations. You think of, as a Mets fan here, Bartolo Colon's home run back in 2016, 17 against the Padres. Like, that was a classic moment. Gary Cohen's call there is, is you know, uh, so that's an issue. Then you have, like, there's a rule that uh, starting in extra innings, there's going to be a man on second base for every team in the half innings. Like, what, what is this, Little League? You know, like, like. It's, why are we speeding up the games? Like, like I just think, you know, it, it, it's almost like a bad relationship. If you have to put in so much effort just to get along with the other person, like, why are you together if it's not, you know, if the net positives don't outweigh, the positives don't outweigh the negatives, it's the same thing. If we have to put impose all these rules, 60-game season, you know, they're banning spitting, you have to carry a wet rag, uh, man on second base and extra inning, universal DH, no fans. What are we doing, right? Like, as much as I want baseball, I don't know. And then you also have to consider, right, is this even going to matter for the record books? Like, if someone wins the World Series in a 60-game shortened season, how do you measure that up? The 2020 champions with an asterisk. Like, I'm a diehard Mets fan, but I'm terrified that if the Mets win in 2020, everyone's always going to say, well, that didn't really count. Yeah, you know, it wasn't really a full season. Yeah, you know, it's maybe maybe let's see them do it over a 162 game season. And I don't know, like there's, there's, they say that there's a a zero distance policy for brawls and they're going to take social distancing seriously in the dugout. I I can just, I can literally imagine a situation where, um, and maybe because I, I released the podcast a couple weeks, um, later than they're recorded, maybe when this is coming out in, what, early August or whatever, maybe this has already happened, but I can see a situation where the baseball season starts and then a week or two later, there's an absolute like spike in COVID cases and they have to, you know, postpone the season or close down the season. Um, But I will say, you know, on the plus side, I think people are so hungry for sports that baseball gets uh, sort of a bad rap. Baseball is underappreciated. And I think that um, if baseball were on, I think you'd see record numbers in, in viewership because there's no football, there's no basketball, there's no hockey. Um, I think there's MLS, but Americans don't really like soccer. So I do think like people, young people specifically, would get really into baseball because what the hell else are you going to watch, right? How many times can you watch the same bullshit on you know Netflix or 
um, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Disney Plus, whatever you're watching. Um, so I don't know. That's uh, that is so that's that. Uh, what else do I want to mention? I feel like we I've been talking a lot about um, you know movies stuff on TV. Uh, my best friend, actually, speaking of TV, my best friend. Um, Jeremy started, he was on the last bonus episode, he started watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and this is a historic uh, achievement, or a historic event here, because I'll get in my soapbox here, because I know, somehow it's almost been an hour, I, I haven't even talked about, like, anything, anything, like, significant, but if you can, like, bear with me on Buffy for a moment, because cause Buffy's actually my favorite show ever, right? Like, I started watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer in 1997, when I was five years old, I remember watching with my mom on the recliner and it gave me nightmares and it freaked me out, but I had the biggest crush on Sarah Michelle Gellar. I thought she was so beautiful and kicked so much ass and I would like dream of being David Boreanaz's character, Angel in the show and, you know, rescuing her, the knight in shining armor and the show really um, defined my childhood in the, you know, in that I grew up like aspiring to have friends like Xander and Willow and be part of a group like the Scoobies and have a romance like Buffy and Angel and have a family like Joyce and Dawn and Giles. And so it, it's a part of my life. And um, I've seen that show, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, more than any other show. I think I've seen the whole series start to finish at least 15 times. That's not, that's not an exaggeration. 15 times. And it's a long series. It's 144 episodes. Um... And then, of course, there's Angel, the spinoff, which is another 100, you know, 10, 115 episodes. So it's it's a lot, but I've seen it with best friends. I've seen it with girlfriends, um, and people don't really understand my, you know, how I'm why I'm enamored with it. I think that it's e- if you hear the show Buffy the Vampire Slayer, it's easy to hear that and write the show off as some campy, you know, dorky uh, Twilight you know, esque show about like a girl that beats up vampires. It sounds very simple. It sounds very uncomplicated, black and white. Oh, like why would I watch that? I could just watch the vampire diaries. I could just watch, you know, uh, uh, Riverdale. But what's unique about the show, um, and, and I don't think I've ever even talked about it on nervous habits. So I'm glad I'm bringing it up now is the, the show had, had such a, a, a distinct flavor in how it combined comedy drama, romance, and horror. I've never seen anything like it. Um, and I think this is a, a testament to Joss Whedon um, who created the show in that it's a, it's a dark show, right? Like the whole premise is, is the metaphor that high school's hell. The, you know, the, Buffy goes to high school over a hell mouth and, you know, encounters all these demons and... Oh, that's my laundry. Uh, <laughs> uh, encounters all these demons and witches and werewolves and vampires. Um, and... It's a dark show. Like there's a lot. There's tragedy. There's loss. There's death. Um, but the entire time, the characters are so written to be so witty and so sharp that you find yourself crying and terrified and grabbing your your covers for comfort. But then you also find yourself laughing as hard as you've ever laughed before. Um, just at how sometimes how preposterous the scenarios are. Sometimes just how like fun, like genuinely funny the characters are. Like Buffy specifically, Sam Michelle Gellar's character. It's just it's it, she's so quirky and and always has like like a, a sh, uh, you know sharp one liner and Xander's the, the clown of the group and even Giles has that like dry like you know uh, foreboding sense of humor and all all the characters um so so the humor of the show is is certainly um, very 
alluring. But they have like this whole uh, Buffy dictionary. They use words like, oh, that gives me the Wiggins or, um, you know, it, it's like a whole language of the show. It's also like the show was was so ahead of its time, like to the point where you watch the show, you watch like the second or third season of the show, and it seems like you're watching a show that was created in 2015 or, or, or maybe even 2020 because the the writing, you know, the the creativity, the um, the elements of of psychology and the supernatural is so different than anything that you saw on TV in the 90s. Um, even like in terms of, I mean, you know, in terms of like social dynamics, the fact that the, the main character is this strong, independent female woman who just absolutely kicks ass. Um, and, you know, the show even portrayed the first like same-sex couple in, in Tara and Willow. And, uh, you know, they had like the first uh, kiss, um, same-sex kiss on television. And um, like the show is so progressive and... Um, God, so beautiful, and and uh, how, there are so many episodes like how it depicts loss and suffering, and you know, rom- like ends to romantic relationships. And for me, like I watch that show, I return to that show, and and I relate to it so much. So it's personally very meaningful for me, which is why I want to share it with so many people I'm close with. And but even removing that, like if you just objectively look at the show, uh, it's among the most critically acclaimed shows ever created. Like, like go online right now. Go on TV.com. Go on IMDb, you know, whatever your trusted source is, and look up the greatest shows ever made, and you'll see The Wire. You'll see Breaking Bad. You'll see The Sopranos. You'll see The X-Files. And you will see, believe it or not, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, this dumb, campy, one-dimensional, uncomplicated show that, believe it or not, is a hell of a lot better than it sounds. Um, so I'm only, I'm only bringing all this up because I, um, my best friend, Jeremy, for years, you know, would be like, oh, what should I watch? What show should I watch? You know, I need a new show. And I'd just be like, dude, you got to watch Buffy. You got to watch Buffy. And he'd just be like, no, you know, it's stupid. I'm, you know, why would I watch like a, a Vampire Slayer? That sounds like something for little kids. And then eventually, I guess he got so bored with the quarantine that he, um, he ended up uh, watching the show with his brother. And he just calls me the other day. He's like, dude. He's like, we are obsessed with it. And me, him, and his brother, uh, we just talked on the phone for hours comparing like our favorite episodes, our favorite characters, our favorite seasons. Um, there's so much to dissect about the show. Like if you if you really like become – there's like different levels of obsession um, to and, – and the Buffyverse more than maybe any other franchise, right? Like it attracts – a lot of obsessive people. And there's like literature, there's philosophy of Buffy, there's, you know, the Buffy culture, there's, you know, Buffy symbolism. And if you peel back, you can di- you can dissect layers of, of, you know, relationships and, um, you know, what the show actually means and, um, you know, how events in the show uh, reflected, you know, reflect events in the real world. There's so, there's so much to pull back and, you know, making comparisons. Oh, I think this guy is like you. I think this character is like you. Um, I think when this happened to this character, like it made a lot of sense. Oh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't really sold on, on this. I wonder what's going to happen in, you know, in this. I wonder like, you know, why, you know, this happened in terms of timing, in terms of evolution. There's just, there's, there's so much um, to peel back. And I'm, I'm actually, I'm really not doing the show justice because uh, it's, it's a special show. And, um, do yourself a favor and, and watch it. It's, you know, it's hard because the first season isn't great. I think the first season of most shows, I remember when I watched Breaking Bad for the first time, the expectations were sky high. Like no show has ever been as hyped up as Breaking Bad um, was. And I watched season one and literally, you can check my Twitter. I, I tweeted, I was like, 
oh, you know, th- this seems fine. I-, I-, I get it. I think it's cool. Yeah, Brian Cranston's good. Okay. Like, what now? But then you watch the second season, and you watch Tuco and the Salamancas, and you eventually meet Gus and Mike, and you see what happens to Jane. And then you're like, wait just a second. This is a special fucking show. And it's the same thing with Buffy. Just get through the first season, get to season two, let yourself... I talked about with... um, uh, What movie was that? Oh, uh, There Will Be Blood. I talked about how you need characters to root for emotionally. And I think that's part of the reason why. Sort of like bringing this conversation full circle. I think that's part of the reason why um, why Buffy like is such a, a special show is because you really do find yourself rooting for um, for for her and for her friends. I think the show, I, I don't know if this is a criticism because I think a lot of shows depict good and evil. It's like very black and white. And, and Buffy's one of those shows. And what gets lost in that is the fact that life is not that simple. There is, there is no good or evil. There's no angel versus angelus. There's no spike with a soul versus spike without a soul. Usually in life, people are fluid people can change people are both good and evil people have good and evil qualities buffy's not like that but it's very clear in buffy like the good guys are the scoobies the bad guys are the master and glory and the judge um and you know the first evil like it's it's clear and but the you know the advantage of that is you do know who to root for and you do know that you're happy when buffy wins and you're sad when when buffy suffers or when buffy loses someone um but I think that's why, you know, the show has such a, uh, you know, people have such a connection with it is um, because when you have shows where there's a good and evil character, you have like a, you know, an emotional, like a longing, like, I don't know. I don't know. When I was, uh, just as an aside, something something you guys don't know about me, when I was in, um, I had to be middle school, so I, I so I've been obsessed with Buffy, literally my whole life. When uh, they ha- they have a Buffy musical in season six, once more with feeling, and my little sister and I and my friend in, in middle school, Matt McGurlin, we uh we memorized all the songs to the musical, and we were going to perform it for the talent show. Um, we actually never did, but we like we planned all these different uh, performances. I think Holly and I still know all the songs um, by heart. We used to play the Buffy board game on the weekends. I still have have that. My parents got me the Chosen Collection um, back when there were DVDs. I had a, the Chosen Collection, the seven, um, uh, or it was a 21-box set because it was a disc from every season, three discs from every season. And I had the Buffy video game for X, Xbox, Buffy Chaos Bleeds. Um, what the hell was I going to say? I was going to say one more thing about this. Then. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I had MySpace. And um, way before Finsta and way before you know fake Twitters and burner accounts, I had a fake MySpace account. I was this 32-year-old lawyer named Carl. And um, he essentially created this group on MySpace because back before you know Facebook groups or whatever, uh, Instagram groups, they had MySpace groups. And he had a group. It was uh, – some like the chosen one Buffy group and it it was the largest or the second largest Buffy group on MySpace. It had like 20,000 members and I was like a MySpace uh, celebrity. Everyone was like, oh, have you met Carl or whatever in the group? I had to be like 13, 13 or 14 when I was managing that page. I bet if I really wanted to, I could um, I could open it up and see. If, if any of you guys out there are like super sleuths with the internet, you can look up 
Carl. Uh, Carl MySpace. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to look this up right now. We're going on. Might as well. Um, Carl Buffy the Vampire Slayer MySpace. I will be shocked if I can find this. Uh, I don't think I'm going to be able to find it. Oh, I remember the comics. Yeah, and then when they ended Buffy Dark Horse, I read the comics. Um, and then as an aside, though, I mean, the last thing I'll say, because I, I could literally talk about Buffy all day. I could have like a Buffy a Buffy podcast just exclusively. Maybe I should. You know what? Maybe I should. I'm tempted. I'm literally tempted to start a separate podcast and just have it be like me reviewing every episode of Buffy. Um. But yeah, then they have Angel, which is the the spinoff with Dave Boreanaz, and uh, it's a darker, it's more of an adult show, right? Buffy's like high school, Angel's like like adulthood. And then they had Firefly, which was another Joss Whedon show, only got one season, but that was incredible too. So anyway, watch Buffy. Uh, I the, the good news is I probably won't be talking about it a lot because it doesn't really come up in um in the uh, in the other episodes, which is which is crazy because it is my favorite show. It is a, a large part of my identity, but it um. Yeah, I don't know why, you know, it's taken me 50 episodes of the podcast to mention it when I'm literally in my bedroom right now, when I'm literally staring at a uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer 20th reunion poster on my wall <laughs> and a Buffy drinking game thing. Um, What else is going on? Um, So we talked about the pandemic, uh, baseball coming back, um, you know, law school uh, in in the fall. I think... It's interesting, you know, as we as we talk about like with this this long quarantine and a lot of people have have had a ton of time for self-reflection. People have started journaling for the first time. Um I that's one habit where I wish I could do that more. When I was a kid, I used to um every day, uh I mentioned this before, every day like after school, after work, I would um I guess not after work, right? Uh but I would write out on my journal and then I would eventually type it out. And um, super cathartic, like getting all your emotions out there. I used to write poetry. I used to write music. I haven't done that anymore. I've been better about writing my dreams out um, in this little this little notebook next to my bed. Um, just writing, as I said in one of the episodes, as soon as you wake up, just writing down some of your some of your dreams. Some of them, I'm telling you, I always tell my friends that my dreams are so are like infinitely more creative. Than uh, than my regular life. What in the hell? It's interesting when coronavirus appears in your dreams. Like I had this dream the other day. Um, uh, I was with my mom. We were going to Target. She forgot the masks, so we had to go back in. It's just interesting that like my subconscious did not know what N95 masks were six months ago, and now in my dreams, everyone's wearing masks. <laughs> um. Yeah, so I've been I've been doing that. I've been pretty good about that. I, I'm I'm still having trouble with screen sucking. I think that everyone has to manage their relationship with, with technology appropriately. They have to check screen time, make sure they're not on their phone too much. I think it's hard because I feel like a lot of people, you know, in life and, and this is part of me getting on my soapbox for my bonus episode, but I'm hitting my stride here. But a lot of people go from screen to screen. They go from their laptop to their TV screen to their iPad to their Apple Watch to their iPhone to their, you know, back to their laptop, back to their TV. And we do that because um, 
a lot of us don't know any better. A lot of us need that constant stimulation. You're sitting in a conversation, reaches a lull, look down and check your phone. You need that that intake of new stimuli. But there's also the dopamine element of it and the fact that, you know, you need that dopamine rush of, you know, validation, you know, that, that squirt of dopamine you get when you open your phone and you see there's a new message, there's something new, someone thought about you. You get that kick. And it's just it's it's made me think about ways to um, you know, recalibrate my dopamine because I think that, you know, dopamine fasting, I don't know if I don't know if that's a thing. I, I feel like I've I've read about it, but just the idea that you can reset your dopamine levels by abstaining from things that uh, bring you pleasure, um, whether that be smartphones and social media, or maybe even you know food, maybe even you know junk food, maybe even um, sex, maybe you know drugs, alcohol, things like that. I think, and I, I don't even know if I'm going to commit to this. I'm just sort of thinking out loud. I think that like when you have a dopamine fast, your it's it's. You know, we talked about addiction with Vera Tarman, um, which was a really fun episode. My one regret with that episode, I might have to bring Vera back, is I love that we talked about food addiction, but I do wish we had the opportunity to talk more about um, just addiction to other substances and, you know, like addiction to video games, addiction to Netflix, addiction to social media. But I think, like, with dopamine fasting, the idea is that, like, the more we're exposed to the exhilaration of dopamine, the more that we need to keep pursuing it to achieve the same effect. It's literally a dopamine addiction. And so if you are doing like a dopamine fast, you take a break from a simulating activity, take a break from from screens, take a take a break from social media, take a break from your smartphone. You're resetting your dopamine levels to increase pleasure. I wonder if that, you know, might be like separating widening the gap um, between these these cues that are triggers for our dopamine addiction. Um, and I think some of it is impulse control, um, which I've talked about a couple times. You guys might have remembered this. I can't remember if this is my episode 19 I did on on um, on that, but essentially, like you know, studies have found where people who are able to resist the the, the famous radishes experiment resist the the you know uh, cookies and eat the radishes, or walking past the dessert tray at a party and staying away from street sweets. Those are more successful uh, measures of Im- impulse control. But you can't, you know, you, you can't expect these temptations to just disappear entirely. You can't expect there to never be screens or, or you know, um, food and alcohol and sex pulling you in. But it's just a matter of like recalibrating your, those triggers and practicing mindfulness and, you know, bringing this stuff into conscious awareness, right? Like I actually... I sort of do do this like consciously like I will literally be like sitting at my desk reading a book and I will feel my brain like hungry for me to check my phone. I will feel that cue of boredness and I, and I will allow myself to reach my left arm over to my nightstand and like hold my my thumb right to the on position of my phone but not turn it on as a way of I know this almost sounds like a little bit like unhinged but as a way of like like telling my brain that I am in control like make this mindful pause and take note of what you're thinking take note of what your body feels choose to do something instead choose to you know have a glass of water go exercise what have you um because I by the way I do keep my phone off I don't because if your phone's on then it's as simple as boom 
click the center button of the iPhone, see your messages, then, then you're sucked in. But literally, I leave the phone off, I leave it face down, and that way I don't have to, you know, be tempted to turn it on. But literally, that's what you got to do. You got to like, like, you know, right now, like, tur- you know, wherever, you- I guess it's hard if you're listening to this on your phone, but, you know, later on, you know, you, I- I'm doing it right now. Go over to your phone. Go right to the on-off button. Right, you know, uh, put your your you know your index finger on the button, but don't click it. And just remind yourself that you're in control, and you don't have to get that dopamine rush of turning on your phone and getting notifications, getting the the measurements, the uh, the measurements, the you know what have you. So I don't know. I've just been thinking about about dopamine, and and I think also one of the reasons why dopamine fasting has come up is. Because something for me as an extrovert that provides me with a lot of dopamine and something that I enjoy a lot is social interaction, is like being around my friends and I'm, I'm literally flooded with, with feel-good hormones, with oxytocin um, and uh, with, with, with endorphins whenever I'm around people, whenever I'm laughing, whenever I have like the sheer bliss of being in a, a delightful conversation. Um, I can just feel my body like warming up when that happens. And so like right now, you know, like sitting in my apartment, like doing work, um, for the last like couple weeks it's been tough like i've had to find other ways to to you know have that fulfillment um that's not to say that i'm you know not going to have social interaction but obviously for a long time as you know i've said it's not gonna look the same um but yeah uh man it's, it's crazy i filled an hour and 15 minutes already and I have not run out of things to talk about. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure if that's like a good thing or a bad thing, considering it's just been me here by myself, um, you know, talking about nothing for the first time in Nervous Habits history. Because as I've said, usually bonus episodes, um, or rather, usually when I'm on, when I'm doing my thing on my own, it um, I have some sort of a uh, some sort of a script. And you know what? Let me check because. I know the longer episodes I've done, I think the longest episode I've done so far has been episode 15, which was an hour and 40, let's see, an hour and 33 from my episode on cancer, an hour, yeah, episode 15 was an hour and 47. This might go past that. We're going to we're gonna see what happens, but um, I'm wondering if I should touch on anything else that's going on insofar as like politics, uh, <laughs> because I do keep, I do like to keep things pretty apolitical, but um. You know, this is a bonus episode. If you've listened this far, God bless you. Um, but uh, politics, do I want to mention? We do have an election coming up, 2020. Kanye West announced that he's running for president last month, um, which was interesting. Uh, yeah, that's uh, – because originally he was like saying he would run in 2024 because he wanted to postpone it. You know, he's close with Trump. And my guy, Elon Musk, um, the, the man, the myth, the legend – one of the greatest innovators, maybe the most brilliant mind um, of our generation, of you know, still living right now, uh, tweeted back and said he fully supports him. So you can you can take that for what it is. Um, but so Kanye West is running. I I don't know what sort of discernible impact that will have. Um, I think that I think President Trump has been. How do I say this nicely? He's been very incompetent holistically in the last four years. I think that. Maybe in the first episode of my pod, um, I talked about, I think it was one of the government shutdowns and we were talking about sort of like laughing at, oh, you know, uh, the Ohio State basketball players came over and Trump had the the buffet of fast food and it was it was sort of like a joke, right? 
just something that we could, you know, laugh about. But I'm not laughing anymore. You know, he's been president for four years. The, you know, obviously the pandemic isn't his fault, but the pandemic response has been abysmal. You know, back in January and February, he essentially said that the virus was a hoax, was a Chinese hoax, didn't exist, politicized it, something that the liberal media was promulgating to keep from getting him reelected. Um, just completely horrendous response, cost, you know, tens of thousands of lives. Some of the, um, the things that he said in public since about, you know, injecting cleaning products into your body, um, about taking drugs that are untested and not clinically proven, just encouraging people to do that, not telling people to wear masks or social distance, not himself setting an example or wearing a mask or social distancing. Everything that he's done with response to COVID has been just so irres- irresponsible beyond, I mean, beyond um, beyond just anything that we could have even fathomed. And the having a rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, encouraging tens of thousands of people to come out um, at this time, like, like, I, I, you, you don't, you don't even have, you don't even have words. Uh, he just keeps outdoing himself. And then uh, I personally think that his response to the pandemic is what's going to cost him re-election, believe it or not. But if you don't believe that, then his response to, uh oh, is that thunder? Ah, but it's so nice out. It's so weird. In DC we've been having um we've been having like rain showers where it'll be beautiful weather for um, you know, for a couple of uh for a couple of days in a row and then you'll get thunder and lightning and you'll see that uh what is this? What the hell was I talking about? This thunder threw me during me out. I don't you guys don't care about the weather. I was I was literally like like talking about, you know, the presidential election. Um uh, so, you know, even if you don't believe the pandemic is going to do him in, really the race, the race relations, like some of the commentary he's made, um, the lack of support that people of color, that black people have gotten from the president, the lack of leadership that he's shown during, you know, the protests, during the looting, during the rioting, the uh, the characterization of rioters and um, of, uh, you know, of violence and dismissing the cause and law and order and bringing the national guard to these communities it's been it's 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 just been horrendous that's the only thing you can say and then for him to say in jest something like oh george floyd is looking down and smiling at the jaws report he just he just doesn't get it like there's there's nothing else you can say he just doesn't get it he's out of touch he's incompetent he's not fit to lead and you know i have a lot of friends who are supporters of president trump and as as i like to say there's two types of trump supporters there's trump supporters who are unwaveringly supportive of him who will excuse everything that he's done no matter what because they stand they stand by him and they're you know stubbornly refuse to criticize him then i have trump supporter friends who are sort of more realistic about his guffaws about like you know who acknowledge you know what he does put his foot in the, who who put his foot in his mouth he does say things that are out of touch. He does fail to provide leadership. And I do definitely have more productive conversations with people in the second camp than the first. But even that being said, it's hard for you to look at the 2020 election and look at everything that President Trump has said and say, you know what? I think this guy is, is, is you know, the person I want in charge for the next four years, you know, given the conditions of how divided America is. And, you know, Given to COVID and and the the fa- the challenges that lie ahead that I mentioned earlier with our healthcare industry, um, you know we need someone who is going to you know provide leadership and, and bring people together and not 
oh my god, like is <sighs> Jesus. And you know, regarding uh, Vice President Biden, I don't think he he was anyone's first pick. I think that the conservatives have a field day with him every time he you know goes in front of the camera. Um, he talk about putting putting your foot in your mouth. I mean, he you know uh, the other day I think he said something like, "Oh, I'm, I'm Joe Biden's husband, Joe." Uh, and he, he does slip up a lot, but you know, I'll excuse that. I think, I think it's, it's, you know, it's just like, like you have to consider, you have to consider like what's worse here. Someone who, you know, arguably isn't all there mentally, but will probably surround himself with experienced, fit, competent people who will get the job done. Um, or, or someone who has shown that or someone who has shown blatant disregard for human life, who doesn't seem to grasp the gravity and the severity of a global pandemic, who doesn't have the, the empathy or the humanity to identify with people who are, are struggling um, economically or, you know, struggling in, in spite of, uh, you know, social or race issues, who doesn't who just doesn't care, who just doesn't give a shit, who just himself probably doesn't want to get reelected. Um, so we'll see what happens in November. Um, I think Americans are fed up. I think that, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, 2016, you know, Trump shocked the world by, uh, by knocking down Hillary Clinton. But uh, it's, I don't know if lightning can strike twice here. Um I think that even in I think in 2016 the world was different in, in a lot of ways. You had a lot of anti-establishment uh, rhetoric, um, you know, a lot of sentiments that Trump and his populist movement uh, capitalized on. You had Clinton, uh, uh, Secretary Clinton, who was obviously super polarizing, divisive. Um, it was it was a perfect storm in a lot of ways. But so many Trump supporters who supported him in 2016 have come out and said because of how he's handled. Um, these issues that I've been speaking of, he just doesn't have the fitness for office. Um, and, you know, let's be honest, mentally, he's deteriorating. He's deteriorating from where, where he is, um, you know, uh, he's deteriorated. He, he has deteriorated. Maybe I'm deteriorating. He has deteriorated from where he was in 2016 to this point in 2020. Um, so, and you know what I'll say? I... And and I wanna I wanna you know jump off politics uh, in in a few minutes because I know it's not <laughs> the most pleasant thing to to talk about all the time but but I do think that Trump's greatest shortcoming is probably the fact that he doesn't take anything seriously. Um, I think that as a reality you know if I can sort of psychoanalyze him for a moment as a reality TV show star, you know, as, as a celebrity, he's always used to entertaining. He's always used to making people laugh, which you see, you know, he does at, at his rallies. But, you know, the the other side of that is he doesn't know how to have serious conversations. It's almost like a parent, you know, who's so eager to be the cool dad or the cool uncle that he doesn't really know how to sit down with his kids and have a serious conversation about drugs or about alcohol or about relationships because he's so used to, you know, putting on that persona. And I think you see that, you know, with with Trump because 
in in light of all of the the serious issues, he's never come out and and you know, or I don't know about never, but very rarely does he come out um, and you know have a unifying conversation with with the country and and you know acknowledge all of the problems that we have and acknowledge you know what we have to do to get better. We he resorts to you know name calling and um, you know nicknames and and. Um, jokes on on Twitter and reposting memes um and you know uh, attacking the fake news media and all of these networks and you know when things i think that when the economy is doing well and before the pandemic and before you know the um black lives matter movement really took off this year you you could sort of overlook that now, i'm not saying you know that Trump's antics, so to speak, were justified before this year. But you know, you could you could sort of sweep it under the rug and say, okay, you know, that's just that's just uh, Trump. You know, that that's just sort of the dumb shit that that he does, and and he's not going to change, what have you. But now the fact that he's continuing to act this way, in spite of the gravity of what's happening around him just shows like an utter lack of um self-awareness a lack of maturity you know it's it's like it's like a, a child that um i i i mean people you know psychologists have have written uh psychologists have have you know attempted to analyze trump's um fitness some trump's mental fitness and you know advisors have come out and written books on it and that's really what it comes down to it's just childlike um antics and you know and and that's not what america needs america you know all of us all of us have moments where we want to lash out and call people names and you know and and uh and criticize the media for uh, what we perceive to be unfair coverage but we don't because when you're an adult sometimes you have to bite your lip and you know, hold back from saying the things that you want and, you know, see the the forest from the trees. But I think Trump, you know, can't do that. Trump is, is, uh, is as I said, he's, you know, immature and narrow-minded and he can hold back. Um, and people in his, you know, inner circle have said that he spends most of his time eating, tweeting, and, and watching news programs. So all this is to say that I... You know, removing the the politics, removing the the partisanship, removing the Republican and Democrat and red and blue, I just I just don't think that you know this country can can afford four more years of uh, of, of President Trump, and I think a lot of his supporters, a lot of people in the party are are sort of realizing that, um, and we'll see what happens in in the next couple of months. But I I also you know I do want to touch on you know since we're talking about this, what's very troubling to me about the direction that the country has been heading in in the last couple of months is, you know, with a lot of the cancel culture. So I, I did an episode, episode 14, where I talked about PC culture and outrage culture and about how um, if people don't like what you have to say in America, they will silence you because we have a problem where uh, because we have a problem in this country where we don't like to to hear opposing viewpoints. That's the way that things were a year or two ago when I did that episode, and that problem still very much exists. But it's sort of gone a step further now with the cancel culture, where essentially people are taking videos of 
you know, videos and, and documenting um, the public behavior of other people and calling to cancel them. And by cancel them, I mean, you know, calling to get them uh, fired from their job, kicked out of school, um, get their reputation smeared publicly, uh, make it so that a lot of these people can't ever have, you know, professional lives anymore. I mean, you see all the time, someone will, um, you know, will refuse to wear a mask in a supermarket. The uh, situation will be filmed, put on Twitter. The Twitter hive mind will find the person, I don't know how, but somehow will find the person's uh, identity, you know, will dox their identity and reveal their address um, and, you know, reveal their employer. The, uh, you know, random people from across the world will leave one-star reviews on Yelp and on Better Business Bureau for the employer and will bombard the employer's Twitter page with, um, you know, uh, negative comments, imploring them to fire X person uh, and, and, you know, and what's difficult is, you know, obviously what, obviously this is not to condone the, you know, behavior of someone goes on a racist tirade, if someone refuses to wear a mask, if someone, you know, uh, as you saw in Central Park, um, provides a false police report, you know, you can't, you can't justify that. That person has to deal with the consequences of their actions. But what's terrifying is now we live in a society where we always have to be on our best behavior. You know, we always have to, have to, um, you know, be wary of the fact that if someone pulls out a cell phone and records you at your weakest possible moment, that could stay with you for the rest of your life. You could find yourself, you know, at your weakest moment and all of a sudden it's gone viral. Tens of millions of people are seeing it. You're out of your job. You're expelled from school. And this doesn't just, you know, have to do with, with videoing people, which is, I mean, that's one terrifying uh, element of this, but it's also, you know, with, um, Posting things online. I mean, you should obviously always be mindful of what you're posting and ask yourself, you know, will my employer, will my school administration uh, be bothered by this? But you see people who are posting statuses about, you know, their positions on uh, the presidential election or on, you know, the the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, And the posts are screenshotted. And they're sent to you know employers, and they're sent to administration. I, I remember you know a friend of mine showed me that one student actually got expelled from school because of something he posted online. You know this wasn't something hateful or, or bigoted or racist or sexist. You know this person had just posted, oh you know I think we should all be um, coming together and uh, something along the lines of like uh, like let's end the divisiveness. And a lot of people associated with um, the Black Lives Matter movement had, uh, you know, sort of read that as as being uh, dismissive of the cause. And again, these are very delicate issues. You should be mindful that anything you post online might be interpreted a different way. But just just this this concept of we are gonna we are gonna we've taken it upon ourselves to ruin your life as a consequence of what you're posting. That's that's a difficult pill to swallow. Um, and I don't know, like you have to ask yourself. In 2020, do you want to live in a world where we police each other? Like it's – if you ever read 1984, I, I don't know. This is starting to feel like you know, the thought police and the telescreens that you know, we are – like people live in fear. People live in fear that anything they say or you know, any way that they express themselves, be it verbally or be it you know, online – 
that it it you know it might be it might have extreme consequences on their career and on the way they see the world and I feel bad for people who who are older who are you know from a different generation you know um, from my parents generation boomers so to speak uh you see with you see it with Karen culture. You know, if you don't if you don't know, Karen is like a, a moniker given to middle aged uh, white women who have a sense of entitlement, usually uh, racist, and um, you know they ask to see the manager. Uh, and you know, you see online that there's uh, Karens. There are videos of so called Karens women who are women who you know go on a tirade or um, there was one so-called Karen, which was a a police officer who didn't get an egg McMuffin and started crying over it that she didn't feel safe. There was another Karen. This was, this this Karen was a while back, but uh, she um, uh, stuck her head inside some car and uh, called this, this woman a bitch and said that her kids couldn't hear her because they were listening to Kids Bop. That actually, that one's pretty funny. There was, of course, as I mentioned earlier, the Central Park Karen, the woman who, who called the police on uh, the man, the African-American man, and filed a, a false police report. And some of these situations are more egregious than others, but, you know, you essentially have these these boomers, these Karens, uh, who are, who act out, who lash out, uh, it's all caught on video, and then their lives are effectively ruined. Um, and it's it's just look, it's funny. Like like I'll be honest, it's funny. A lot of these the you know the takedowns of the Karens are are funny to watch from the outside, but these are like real people, you know, that suffer real consequences. Um, and it's it's just it's troubling. It's troubling. From a lot of respects, it's troubling that these Karens. It, it, I guess, it's troubling. The, I guess, the ignorance is troubling. First of all, that there are people out there who, you know, are truly hateful and you know, are bigoted and haven't taken the time to appreciate the seriousness of these issues. But it goes back to something that I've said so many times: is if you fight hate with hate, nothing's going to change. If someone is racist, if someone is, you know, xenophobic, if someone is anti-immigrant, like you're not going to get them to change their mind by like, you know, posting a video online and <clears throat> ruining their life. You know, these people need to be educated and they need to be understood, I guess. They need to be educated and you need, you, you need to sort of like meet them where they're at. And I don't know. Like, I just, I don't think this is, this is the answer. I don't think that this is, that this is the way to go. Um, and I, I like, I want to emphasize, like some of these people deserve it. Like some of these people need to sort of learn their lesson. I, I, I get it. Um, but like at what point do we look at where we are as a society and say, "Hey, I think we've gone a little too far." Um, like, my God, people people are living in fear, and and also there's some good Karens out there. You know, my my mom, <laughs> you know, my mom's name is Karen, and and I, I I don't think that she 
you know, fits the mold of one of these, uh, you know, crazy unhinged um, kids bop Karens, Central Park Karens. Yeah, I guess I guess I just wanted to like to put that out there, and I I don't know how to change it. I don't know if it's going to change. Um, but the reason why I I said the boomers, you know, just don't know or whatever is. You know, if you're in your teens or your 20s and your 30s, you know that everyone, you know, you know about the power of the iPhone. You know about, you know, if people take videos, how they can go viral. You know all that. And you know that you have to be, watch what you say. But a lot of people in their 50s and 60s who didn't grow up with this technology, who are maybe more insulated from it, they don't understand how social media works. And they don't understand how, you know, uh, how quickly these um, phenomena can go viral and they don't understand how justice can be doled out online. So I guess it's sort of an ethics issue. If someone doesn't understand the just how, if someone doesn't understand how serious the consequences of their actions might be, is the justice warranted? right? Like in a situation where someone knows, you know, what can happen if they express themselves a certain way and they do it anyway, yeah, you know, you sort of get what you paid for. You made your bed, you sleep in it. But if someone, you know, isn't aware of what can happen, I don't know. I mean, they're still acting wrongfully, but I don't know. I think, I think, I think like in the big picture, I just think you need to like, we need to remediate ignorance um and man it's just scary it's just it is just scary you go online you watch a video um of of some guy in a Walmart saying i feel threatened or or some you know guy in a pickup truck um screaming something about trump trump then you know the first comment is twitter do your thing second comment is does anyone have his employer the third comment is we found him then you, you know, and then you go down the rabbit hole. Then you click the employer's Twitter and the, you know, there's a hundred comments that says, fire this person, fire this person. They post the video, they do that. Then you, you know, look at the person's Twitter or Facebook and it's been deleted and their LinkedIn has been deleted. Then you Google search this person's name and if you, then you Google the person's name and the first thing that comes up, the first hundred things that come up is so-and-so is a racist, is so-and-so is a bigot, is so-and-so is a sexist. And that stuff stays with you for the rest of your life. Like the the Google al- algorithms, you know, are hard to change. I mean, like there there are companies that that work to essentially repair your online reputation, make it so that you know when you're Googled, the first things that come up aren't you know the worst moment moments of your lives. But even then, there's no guarantees. So. Maybe I'm just too empathetic, but I don't know. I don't know. And just to reiterate, there is absolutely no excuse for hate or intolerance or racism or bigotry. And if this sort of justice is necessary for us as a society 
to accept that holistically, to learn that holistically at a macro level to prevent the perpetuation of systematic racism, fine. But I just don't know if cancel culture has gone too far. And I don't know what the next step is. You know, like what comes next? Like are we, is it not enough? Like right now we're policing public displays of behavior, you know, outbursts on the highway or in the supermarket. What if the next phase is somehow, somehow we can access one another's text messages or phone calls or Facebook chats and release those publicly? Imagine getting canceled for a message that you sent to your friend privately with no expectation that would ever be seen publicly. Imagine if somehow there was technology that could release all of the text text messages you've ever sent in your entire life. I can promise you that for you, for me, for anyone, there are things that you've said probably in the last week that could get you canceled. You know, there are messages that you've sent, you know, fuck this person, fuck that person. I hate so-and-so. I can't believe this. That. It... So where does it end? Because I know you think your information's secure. I know you think that, you know, your text messages are safe. Maybe you use encrypted servers. Maybe you don't, you don't text. Maybe you talk on the phone. But, you know, wireless providers, they hold on to your records. They're subpoenaed, text messages are subpoenaed all the time. So just sort of think about that. I know this, I know this is like a, a long-winded rant um, in the midst of kind of like a, a lighter bonus episode. But I don't know, I, I'm sort of getting into it and I'm thinking about it now. And like, just think about that. Just think for a moment about like, how would you feel if all of your text messages were released publicly? And I don't know. Like, that is that is terrifying to think about. I definitely, you know, should be more cautious about how I communicate with people over text because I don't know. It's not as safe as you think it is. It's really not. And the old joke on Facebook chat is, oh, Mark Zuckerberg is always watching or, you know, Mark, there's a meme of Mark Zuckerberg laughing in the chat at your message. But like... It's serious. I mean, I can see a situation where five years from now, you know, like how celebrities or athletes have their old tweets um, discovered and they have to apologize for things they said 10 years ago. Um, I could see that where, you know, five years from now, there's software that unearths everyone's text messages and you have people apologizing. Oh, I'm sorry about the text I sent in August of 2009, uh, it was very, you know, it was wrong and, and I shouldn't have said it. Like, oh my God, I'm, 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 you know, getting physically ill just thinking about, just thinking about living in a world like that or you're not safe anywhere. You are not, your thoughts, your communication isn't safe anywhere. Um, so just, I don't know, I'll wrap it up. So, so, so just think about that in the context of cancel culture and uh, of, of Karen culture. And yeah, I'm, <laughs> yeah, let's, let's talk about, let's switch gears. Let's, let's talk about um, something 
besides politics, let's see. Although, speaking of politics, Hamilton dropped on Disney Plus, and I never saw Hamilton in uh, on Broadway in New York on account of I don't have $3,000 that I'm looking to, you know, burn in a hole in my pocket. But um, I did, for some reason, I did like, like uh, listen to all the songs on Spotify a couple years ago, and I got absolutely obsessed. Um, it's funny, you've already heard me uh, you know, heard my like like just unthinkable obsessions with baseball and Buffy um, so far, but but now uh, you know y- you'll also learn like I I was super 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 obsessed with the soundtrack to Hamilton um, to the point where like literally on pre games on Friday nights I would listen to Guns and Shifts with my friends and be like oh my god guys like isn't this awesome like listen to this rap or um, you know really really like memorizing the words to those and my uh, like most Hamilton fans my um, what's it called my like rank of the songs changed a lot like at first I listened to it and I thought wow like um satisfied is is the best song on here and then um one of my friends was like no you have to listen to non-stop and then I listened to non-stop and I was like wow this is you know just what a beautiful combination of all the songs and then someone else was like no listen to quiet uptown and I was like what quiet uptown that's an emotional song you know listen to say no to this and there's so many the brilliance of that um that production, and I'm not, I am not a Broadway person, but uh, the brilliance of Hamilton is the fact that, you know, much like with the Beatles, I, I think you could actually, you know, sort of like, 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 you know, thread the needle between the Beatles and uh, Hamilton because much like with the Beatles, how they have not one, not two, but a hundred hits, Hamilton has like 30, 40 amazing, like catchy, well written, you know, smart, uh, just, just like, incredible songs um there's not i you know i venture to say there's not a bad song in the entire show um again i'm not a broadway aficionado right i've seen like um mama mia you know i've seen fiddler on the roof uh you know all, all the all the basic ones but i you know can't think of another show on broadway ever where every single song was like equal levels of phenomenal there's there's no weakest link um so i saw it on disney plus for the first time and it was it was even better than i thought i mean lin-manuel miranda you know he he deserves every bit of the acclaim that he receives um i've heard nothing but good things about him like stand-up dude and then on top of that um just like incredible talent there will never be another hamilton just like you know there's not going to be another uh i'm trying to think what the equivalent is in the movie world um because I mean, they the problem is they, make, they always make sequels for for movies. You can't make a sequel because Hamilton's dead. Um, um, I don't know. I don't know. There will never anyway. There will never be another Hamilton. Um, but yeah, I honestly I've been um I've been killing time a lot. I've been reading uh, in the spirit of my conversation with um, Jeremy uh, on the last bonus episode on quantum physics. I've been reading the book by Brian Greene, The Elegant Universe, learning about general relativity and special relativity and string theory, which is super interesting. It is very dense. Uh, much like he said, it is very, very hard to get through. But um, I don't know. It's cool. It's cool just being like a, a well-rounded it, – it's cool – I'm not saying being. like It's cool striving to be a well-rounded person intellectually because I think that if you're someone who hangs out with their friends and you can hold a conversation about like – you know, I'm, I'm in law school – about like law or politics, great. But like, can you hold a conversation with someone who you know is 
getting a master's degree in math or someone in the medical field or someone who's a quantum physicist. And so I, I really want to be someone like that because I subscribe to, as you guys know, Dale Carnegie's How to Win Friends and Influence People. And it's all about listening and asking questions, right? Like going to a party, um, asking someone about their hobbies and they say botany and just, you know, either saying like, oh, I want to learn about botany, tell me, or just being like, oh, you know, it's actually funny you mentioned that. I'm planning a petunia right now. Um, just being able to, to bridge that gap and have that connection. And I think for me, like part of being that level of well-rounded means like reading, reading a lot and, and, you know, trying to expand my base beyond just, uh, law and beyond just politics. Um, you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot, like if you, uh, if you are at a dinner party or something, a, a COVID zoom social distancing gathering, there is a lot going on in the legal world. You have had some, some huge recent Supreme court decisions in the, uh, first the LGBTQ case where they ruled that the, uh, sexual orientation, discrimination, discrimination, um, based on uh, being homosexual or trans transgender is the same as discrimination based on sex, discrimination being a man or a woman. So that was a, a huge victory for the LGBTQ community. Um, and of course, the opinion was uh, drafted by Justice Gorsuch to the surprise of many. I find it very refreshing when uh, conservative justices write, you know, air quote, liberal opinions and liberal justices write, air quote, conservative opinions, just because it shows that they're, you know, thinking about principles rather than just thinking in terms of like allegiance to their party. So that was the big decision. And then recently the, um, the DACA, the, so the Trump administration shut down the DACA program, which, uh, was shielded young, young immigrants, dreamers from deportation. And the court essentially said the DHS and Trump can't do that. So they, um, overruled Trump there. Um, and again, like that was another opinion that was drafted by Roberts and it doesn't mean that Roberts is a closet liberal. Um, it's just another instance where they're looking at the text of the constitution and what the implication is. So you had the LGBTQ decision with Gorsuch, you had the immigration decision with Roberts, um, if you're into administrative law, <laughs> you have the decision that the president can't hire the director or fire the director of the Consumer Financial Protective Bureau without cause, the seal of law case. So I, I mean, I, so it's interesting, like before law school, I would have looked at the seal of law case and been like, this seems like, like, you know, inconsequential bullshit. But now like that I took a class in administrative law, I was reading it and being like, wow, like what sort of implications will this have for, um, you know, other independent agencies and whether or not they will be affiliated with political parties rather than being truly independent. So it's, it's interesting how law school has sort of framed how I look at that. Um, but yeah, so like there's a lot in the legal world, there's like a lot to talk about. So you can definitely like become more um, well-rounded. Uh, and then also I've been filling my time. There's a lot of like, it's a lot of like, like a, uh, mindless stuff that I watch sometimes just just not because it's like and not because it's entertaining but I don't know if you guys have ever had like a long you know heavy week of work or whatever and then like you want to watch something mindless to to get your mind off of it that's how I feel about some of the shows like for example there's a show on Netflix called Fuller House um and it's a, a sequel to the show from the early uh late 80s early 90s Full House and this is not a situation like the Beatles or Hamilton or Buffy where I'm going to tell you oh my god roll out all the superlatives. Fuller House really, really knocked it out of the park. This is like maybe the, the worst, most poorly written, least entertaining show I've ever watched in my entire life. It's utterly predictable. The acting is like pretty bad across the board. Um, I, I find myself cringing and forcing myself to laugh, but it's perfect to like just have on in the background while I'm like cooking or doing laundry, um, which I have to get soon. Or, uh, you know, while I'm just like, like, you know, I just want to watch something and just not think about school or not think about stressful situations that's fuller house you know they had their last season so i watched i invested five five seasons so what 30 minutes each 15 episodes 
I invented uh, invested something like, you know, uh, why I might not be able to do math right now. Five seasons, thirty episodes, fifteen times five, something like sixty to seventy hours on watching Fuller House, which is, I mean, it's bad, but you know, it's wrapped up. Um, don't watch it. Uh, this is this is a Rick wreck. <laughs> w r e c k. I'm not advising you to watch Fuller House. It was it was pretty pretty bad. And then um, thirteen reasons why. It's a little you know similar thing. It's like very poorly written. The acting's a little bit better than something like Fuller House. Um, but that's a show where the first season. Um, I thought was spectacular. I loved that, you know, here was a show which actually didn't shy away from problems of mental health, uh, depression, substance abuse, sexual assault. Like, let's let's talk about it. Let's talk about suicide. Let's talk about anxiety and depression. People criticized 13 Reasons Why. People said the 13 Reasons Why fetishized suicide, that it was too, um, uh, you know, visually showed a little too much. Um, I hear that, but I think, more importantly, you have you know a extremely well watched show that people were criticizing, and you know you have a show that millions of people are watching, and they're finally talking about these issues with their parents, with their teachers, with their loved ones. So I think that was important. And as someone who struggled in high school, um, someone who struggled to be confident in who I was and struggle with anxiety and like I related a lot to the characters of the show um even though I'm 28 and I I don't think the show is written you know I don't think there's people sitting in in a room like "Mm, I wonder if a you know single 28 year old man would would relate to the show uh but I don't know I that show you know sort of jumped the shark it stayed on a little too long um some of these shows like like you think of uh, a show like Dexter where after season four, you know, the show, it's like universally regarded as being like the worst series finale of all time, the worst like last few seasons. Some shows, you know, when they're supposed to end. 30 Reasons Why might have been one of those shows because the first re- the, the first uh, ep- season, you know, you, you want to see why Hannah Baker killed herself, the 13 tapes. Second season, you know, you sort of want to wrap up the story, see if, you know, she gets her justice with Bryce Walker. But then three and four, it's like it's not even about Hannah anymore. It's like what are we even – um, what are even what are we even doing here? Um, you know, and then I, I've seen shows like Westworld and Mr. Robot. Those are you know I, I, I don't even have to speak too much about. It. Th- those are excellent excellent shows. There's a lot of of top notch um, entertainment that's being put out in uh, in 2020. So it's like it's um it's not hard to to find like good stuff to watch. It's just it's just like like I said earlier. You know, you don't want to spend all of your free time. You know. Uh, staring at a screen, you know, consuming content that other people create. Don't you want to like get better? You want to improve? You want to like come out of quarantine whenever it ends um, with a new skill? And I, I sort of struggle with this a lot. Struggle with like not um, not being, you know, being too hard on myself and, you know, at the end of the day being like, oh, you know, I wasn't productive enough. I should have, I should have practiced my Spanish or should have tried cooking a new dish or I should have you know, hit the gym. Um, so there's a fine line between allowing yourself some some free leisure time to wind down, uh, and also like making sure you're doing something to better yourself every day. Um, so we're running on an hour and forty five, an hour and fifty minutes. I I'm all out of iced coffee. Um, I think I'm pretty much out of what I wanted to talk to you about, or stuff that I wanted to talk to you about. Um. I hope that, you know, everyone listening to this is is hanging in there. I 
man, I can't even imagine like like I've had I haven't had um the easiest time with quarantine, but I just think I'm like so lucky and so privileged compared to so many people out there. I remember my uh I did a Zoom session with my doctor. My doctor was like, you know, Ricky, you know, you have anxiety. Let's talk. How are you? And I was just like, listen, doc, like, please do not worry about me. There are people out there who are so depressed, who are so sad and so hopeless, who can't even get out of bed every morning, um, you know, who everything that they, that they love out of life, you know, uh, just being able to go outside and see their friends and, you know, get a bagel and, um, these there's people who are having a tough time and then when you couple that with you know black people who are terrified of of you know not having their government their leader you know leadership or the police um the public support them it's it sucks it really it really sucks and uh i do consider myself very lucky um but if you're listening to this and you're having a hard time, there are resources. There are like, you know, there are people you can talk to. Um, and I don't know, maybe uh, as I wrap this up, I'll do something I haven't done before in this podcast. So let me see if I can even do this. So you know what? I, when I, so I was going through, uh, back in 2016, I was going through sort of a, a tough, um, time in my life, really tough time in my life. And I was reading all the self-help books out there. And what really helped me, I read this, it's, it's funny, you, you know, you know there's, there's so much, there's millions of books out there, there's a whole industry on helping people through, you know, through depression and all that. And what really helped me, believe it or not, was a really uh, simple book called Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson. Uh, I think that was, I, I should double check because I don't want to, I take these attributions super seriously. I don't want to mess it up. So don't, don't sweat the small stuff by Richard Carlson. Very good. I think he might've written it with his wife too. Anyways, um, so it's a book of just a hundred suggestions um, that this guy uh, Carlson writes out. I don't even know where he got them if he just made them up, if it was some sort of, uh, you know, accumulation of things that he's read, but a hundred guiding principles. Um, and when I was going through this time in my life, I read the book and then every single day I tried to incorporate one of these principles into my life. And I eventually made a collage for my wall. Um, it's, it's, uh, this poster board, like what you would use for the science fair when you were in uh, seventh, eighth grade. And it's at the top in huge green letters, a hundred guiding principles, for healthy and worry-free living. And I'm not going to read all of them, but I essentially wrote out all of these in the neatest handwriting that I can possibly um, you know, write it in, which is astonishing because for me, one of my worst qualities has always been my handwriting. Um, when I was in first grade, my teacher would, would write, Eater, please, on all of my submissions. And uh, you know, it's, it's sort of a virtue though because then when I scribble notes, no one can read what I'm writing. But so... This is actually pretty legible. So I'm just going to read a handful of these, uh, maybe like 15 or 20, that maybe you know you can sort of try to internalize if life sucks for you right now, and and you know maybe you're looking for and uh, you know uh, something, anything. Um, let's see what we have. So these are just some guiding principles from this book. Don't sweat the small stuff. 
Uh, make peace with imperfections. Mm. So that's key, especially in this day and age where everyone's striving to be perfect. Perfect body, perfect job, perfect husband, you know, wife. Just like all of it. Just, you know, just make peace with the idea that imperfection's okay. Imperfection's unique. Imperfection's fine. Let go of the idea that gentle, relaxed people can't be super achievers. This is key for me because I am very type A. I'm very neurotic. And a part of me is like, well, if I wasn't this neurotic, if I wasn't this OCD, then I couldn't be successful. But then as you get older, you encounter people who are more type B, who are more laid back. And guess what? They're just as successful, if not more successful. Uh, remind yourself that when your to-do list, re- remind yourself that when you die, your to-do list won't be empty. That's really good because we have this like tendency to always want to accomplish everything we can every day of our to-do list. Oh, I have to, you know, pay these bills. I have to clean this room. I have to like make my doctor's appointment. I have to talk to this person, do this thing. But like, you're always going to have stuff to do. It's always, you know, you're not going to, this is sort of morbid, but you're not going to die. And well, you know, I've, I've done everything on my to-do list. It's, it's just, it's reality. There's always going to be more stuff. So just, you know, sort of put things in perspective. Uh, don't interrupt others or finish their sentences. Damn. This okay. So this one's this one's really important. Uh, I have strived to be better at that, but obviously, um, I don't know. I still have a ways to go. Especially for me, interrupting people isn't that hard because I just like sort of tell myself when someone's talking, don't speak. Wait for them to finish. Wait for them to finish. Hold on to your response. Hold on to your response. Keep listening. But the not finishing the sentences, that's tough, especially for someone like me who talks really fast and gets really excited. If someone um, is is like trying to tell me that they like went to a bar and they were like, oh, I had the most amazing time at, I'll like cut them off to be like, oh, was it at like, you know, uh, Dewey's? Was it at patios? Like patties? It's like, I, I won't let them say it. And that's, that's a bad habit. Um, so I think that's something to work on. Let others have the glory. This one's really important too. Uh, if you're always looking to get credit and get, you know, acknowledgement for something, um, maybe once in a while, just let someone else, you know, have that attention for a change. Uh, create patience, practice periods. So this is actually something that I was thinking about devoting a whole episode to at one point, a patience practice period. Um, and I'm tempted, uh, maybe I should at some point do an episode on that, but this is the idea that like when you're waiting at the elevator, like, like it, it's very tempting to just push the button and push the button and push the button and look at your phone and, and be shaking your leg. Cause you just want to get, get where you're going, but take opportunities to just wait patiently for whatever you're waiting for. Patience, practice, period. Um, ask yourself the, the uh, question, will this matter a year from now? You've probably heard that before. Uh, yeah, I think I think that's that's pretty significant. Put put your problems in perspective. Will this even matter a year from now? Be the first person to be loving or reach out. Yeah, like definitely. How many times do you have friends who are essentially um, what's it called? How many times do you have friends who like you never hear from and and, and you know you, you sort of cross your arms and say like it's not even fair. This person's got to call me. Why do I always have to be the first one to reach out? Like, just let go of that. Just let go. Just be comfortable being the first person to be loving or to reach out. Uh, I'm going to cruise through. There's a lot of good ones on here, you guys. Um, 
I like this one. Spend a moment every day thinking of someone to thank. That one's beautiful because that one reemphasizes gratitude. And if you're too busy being grateful, it's pretty hard not to be happy. Uh, so yeah, spend a moment every day thinking of someone to thank. Smile at strangers. Look into their eyes and say hello. Wow. Wow. Yeah. I, I mean, I think it's interesting sociologically, like how we treat strangers, because I don't know if it's like a species thing, like if this is consistent across all mammals, but, you know, most people avoid eye contact with strangers. Most people like shy away from strangers, but they're just people like you and me. And this is the worst thing in the world to show a little compassion, smile, look them in the eye, say hello. Uh, I think that makes you feel good, usually makes them feel good. Imagine the people in your life as tiny infants or 100-year-old adults. Yeah, I, I mentioned that in my episode with Marie Winter on relationships. Whenever you're, you're angry, just imagine, you know, everyone's a little baby, like an actual baby, not, not the Benjamin Button old man freak, an actual baby. And then I think that uh, that, that will help you understand and, and emphasize, uh, empathize. Become aware of your moods and don't allow yourself to be fooled by your low ones. That's a really good one. Um, this is something I always tell my sister actually because sometimes you'll wake up and you'll be upset and you'll catastrophize and you'll think, oh my God, I'm upset. You know, something like dire is happening right now. Um, and you'll sort of like like attribute your mood to your situation. Like, oh, I'm upset. That must mean X is going on in my life. But, you know, you need to like be super mindful and conscious uh, vigilant about your mood and not don't allow the, the you know moods to to fool you the the low moods to, to fool you um what else we got here when in doubt about whose turn to take it when in doubt about whose turn it is to take out the trash take it out so this is also sort of like the the one about being the first person to be loving and reach out like I think I think the over the overarching theme of both of those is just stop keeping score, and this is something I'm very guilty of. But stop like in your head, like especially if you have a roommate. You know, we talked about that at the beginning. But like in your head, stop. Don't be like, all right, well, you know, the last two weeks I took it out Monday, Wednesday, but then he did my dishes on Thursday, but then on Friday. Because then you know, it's it's not it's not healthy, and it's hard for me, you know, or. or uh, uh, those out there with OCD or who are just very neurotic about those kinds of things, not to do that, but just make an effort to just take it out. You see the trash, take it out. Be the bigger person. It, it's, it takes a lot of emotional investment to just carry around that scorekeeping mentality. So just let it go. Um, ooh, resist the urge to criticize. Oh my God. Maybe... I mean, I, I can improve in a lot of these, particularly the, the finishing sentences, but this one specifically, resist the urge to criticize. I am so critical. I mean, you literally, you, you've heard the Rick's Rex, you've heard how negative and cynical I can be. So when someone presents me with an idea or an anecdote or anything, or even when I meet someone in my head, it's just like, oh, you know, they were fine, but this, you know, you, you, you get like a dish of uh, baked chicken. Oh, it was fine, but this was wrong. Just, just, you know, resist the urge to be critical, just appreciate things for as they are. Write down your five most stubborn positions and see if you can soften them. Write down your five most stubborn positions and see if you can soften them. That one's really good. I've done that before. I think that um, everyone in their life needs to try this. Do it right now with me if you haven't done it already. 
write down your five most stubborn positions and see if you can soften them. You can you can pause the podcast. I think that a lot of us have these um, these deep, you know, firmly held beliefs that uh, we don't allow ourselves to be open to un, uh, under which we don't allow ourselves to be open to um, contrasting opinions, and it's not always healthy. Um, it's really not. Like one of them for me was the idea that men and women can't be just friends, right? Like a when Harry met Sally, uh, when Harry met Sally situation. But now, you know, two of my best friends are, are, are women, and then Holly, of course, my younger sister, my best friend, also woman, um, and Tara, older sister, best friend, woman. So, yeah, I think you need to be less stubborn about your positions. Um, so, so write write them down. Uh, I will go through some more. I like this. Just for fun, agree with criticism directed towards you, then watch it go away. Yeah, like it's the same sort of thing, you know, like rather than stubbornly denying if someone is critical, disagree with it. You know, people tell me I'm too intense. Yeah, you know what? I am pretty intense. That's true. You know, you're a little little neurotic. You're a little high-strung. Yeah, you know what? I can be high-strung. That's a good point. Thanks for bringing that to my attention. Um, what's another one? Oh man, you need to you need you need to calm down. Yeah, I know, I know. Sometimes I just get a little a little worked up. Agree with criticism towards you, then watch it go away. Breathe before you speak. Good one, easy one. Like especially in arguments, in conversations. Breathing before you speak just gives your your uh, your brain and your body, a, 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 you know, a pause to slow down. Because what generally happens is when you say things without breathing, it's probably not what you mean. It's probably what you were thinking, but what hasn't had the opportunity to be filtered before it leaves your mouth. So, breathe before you speak. Uh, Do a favor and don't ask for or expect one in return. Yeah, yeah. I mean, right now, like the transactional nature of relationships, it's always like, oh, you know, I'll do this for you, you do this for me. Or, oh, you know, like, can you pay me back because I, I, I got you for the last Uber ride. Or, um, or hey, like, I'll refer you for this job. Like, you know, you just do me a solid down the line. That's, that's not relationships. Relationships should be unconditional. Um, it shouldn't be contingent on a present or future favor. So, do do a favor for someone and don't expect anything in return. I think that's that's uh, that's that's a key principle. Uh, if someone throws you the ball, you don't have to catch it. That's a good one because that uh, sort of like is along the lines of be comfortable saying no to people. Like it's very easy to just be bulldozed over when someone calls you. Like, hey, you know, we're, we're coming to your roof. Hey, you know, meet us at this bar. Hey, I need you to do this. But it's like no. You're throwing me the ball. I don't have to catch it. Just say yes or no to things based on what you want, not what other people want. Um, maybe one or two more because I know, I know I've done. I said I do fifteen to twenty. I've done a lot of these. Uh, yeah, and then I guess the last one that I'll say is, uh, or actually no, I'll do two more, two more. Uh, mind your own business. Seriously, mind your own business. Like. 
I remember when I was in school, that was like the thing the kids would say to each other. But still as adults, it's like, why are you so concerned with what other people are doing? You know, as a law student, like I find myself asking like, why am I so concerned with how much of the reading this person did? Why am I so concerned with like whether this person is going to the happy hour? It's, you know, at the end of the day, you know, you need to focus on yourself. You can only, everyone's always taught me this. You can only be responsible for yourself. You can only affect yourself. Just focus on that, you know. Everything else is just it's secondary. And lastly, um, I hate saying this. I, I really hope you don't write off the last two hours. But live this day as if it were your last. It might be. Seriously. If you don't believe me, go back and listen to the 13th episode on death because we're living, we're living in, in uh, unprecedented times. So it, um, I don't know, life is short. Life is short. Do what you want. Do what you love. Um, yeah, I, I hope that you know me sharing those helped you a little bit. Um, if, if you're having a tough time, maybe you can sort of go back and, and listen to that, try to internalize those. Uh, the book is uh, Don't Sweat the Small Stuff by Richard Carlson. Um, and and yeah, I'm going on, a, I'm over two hours now. This is officially the longest podcast that I've ever had on Nervous Habits. So let's... let's big, big success. Um, but it's fun. I mean, it, doing the bonus episode alone, um, it's, it's a different sort of experience. It's more, more reflective and more of a chance for me to, you know, think back on what's happening in my life for the last couple months, as opposed to with friends. It's, it's, it's more like goofy banter. Um, but we'll see if I decide to do more bonus episodes alone. I know that it is, it is a nice treat to have friends come on. Um, and you know, and share their experiences. And I've had some really, you know, interesting intellectual conversations on the nature of time, of course, on, on why, you know, on how social interaction works and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, so yeah, this has been, this has been a lot of fun. Um, hope you've enjoyed. If you've stuck with me for the last, uh, two plus hours, I thank you for your time. Um, I am surprised. Um, but yeah, I like, I like the longer episodes. I like, I like the longer episodes. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I think, I think the well is completely dry at this point. The iced coffee is empty. The computer, the laptop is nice and hot. Um, and there's, there's really not a whole lot more to say here. Um, coming up, I have some really exciting episodes returning to the roots, psychology, philosophy, technology, the roots of nervous habits coming in the next couple of weeks with distinguished guests. Um, some bonus episodes. I won't, I probably won't be by myself again for a long time. So if you're sick of hearing my voice, you won't hear me for this duration for probably a pretty long time, but be that as it may, if you have not reviewed the pod on Apple, please do so. You can just review on your phone, nervous habits podcast. I think you can even, if you still have iTunes on your computer, you might be able to to review it. Um, you can watch us on YouTube, the clips and the full-length episodes, Nerv- search Nervous Habits Podcast. You can follow us on Twitter, Nervous Habits underscore. Follow us on Instagram at Nervous Habits Podcast. And you can write me at Nervous Habits Podcast at gmail.com. I'm not going to say it twice. Um, so that is pretty much it. Thank you for listening. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay nervous. Take care, guys. Nervous Habits. Bonus content.